Good morning. Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 6, 7, and 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. 
But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him on the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The word of the Lord. That was a great uh, reading by Will. I wanted you guys to hear the longer narrative. Sometimes these narratives in the Old Testament in particular are great just to sit in and rehear them because you know the story. All of you know the story of Noah's Ark. In fact, probably I would say that the most famous story in the Bible is Noah's Ark. It's the one that anybody who has been, you know, had any exposure to Christianity at all, even if they never went into a church, just lived in a Christian culture or, or realm, they've heard of Noah's Ark. And it's because you hear about it from the kid's story age. Like, it's, it's seen as a kid's story, right? And so there are puzzles that are Noah's Ark puzzles for kids. There's, there's a Playmobil set, and I think like a Little People Fisher-Price uh, Noah, Noah's Ark set. Um, picture books, all sorts of picture books. And it's always the, um, the animals and the boat and Noah smiling. And it's great, you know, like play with it. This is the story. It's a kid's story. But it's not a kid's story. If you listen to what Will just read, it's not a kid's story at all. One illustrator who did a children's book on Noah's Ark, Peter Spire, actually got it closer to right than anything I've seen um, in anything with kids. So this is his illustration, beautiful illustrator, Peter Spire, and this is his illustration of Noah getting all the animals onto the ark. But watch what he does next. The next picture, these are the animals that don't get on the ark. And if you go one more photo... This is all three in an, in an arrangement. These are the animals on the left once the door is shut that didn't make it in. 
Upper right is as the reins are going, and all of a sudden the shorter animals can't be seen. And then the bottom right, just the boat. Hey, kids, who wants to read the kid's story? The flood is a, is a, it's a pretty hard story to read and to listen to and to think about. Because it is a story of judgment on sin, on God grieving over humanity and wiping out all creatures because of human sinfulness, brought in from the fall, but carried on by the sons of, of Adam. But it's also, not, it's not just a story of judgment, it's also a story of salvation. Salvation through the ark, salvation through judgment, it's a story of rescue. And it's a story, as we'll look at next week, of recreation. God tells Noah and his family, go forth, be fruitful and multiply. He tells them to do what he called Adam and Eve to do in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a recreation and rescue story. But most of us as modern people, we try to ignore the dark side of Noah's Ark. That's why all of your kids' books and everything is just kind of the, the boat and the pretty cute animals and Noah's smiling. And we think of it as a fairy tale. And in part, that, that fits with how we approach Christianity in general. Most of us in the modern West, and I'm not saying you guys, but just saying like speaking generally, generically, is we live as if there is no such thing as a judgment as if there's not really anything we need to be saved from. So many people approach Christianity or Jesus or religion or even get back to church once you have kids of a certain age in order to be a better person because a little bit of rules or you know, some sort of order or maybe just to, to have a better life in the same way that you approach like exercise and eating vegetables. You think, oh, I'll, I'll have a better life. I'll live longer and happier if I exercise, eat well, go to church on Sundays. But the flood narrative won't let us do that. It is what Old Testament scholars call an enacted prophecy, a story in which God acts in history in order to foretell what he is going to do to say something to all people for all time. And in that sense, it is an enacted prophecy that is telling us, it is warning us of coming judgment, but it is revealing coming the, the, the redemption that has already come. And it's inviting us into the boat that God has provided. This morning, as we look, we're going to look at how the, the story of Noah's Ark, the narrative there, is actually a narrative that foretells the whole arc of redemption, of what God is doing in history. And it's being done in these three chapters to point to what he does in all of Genesis to Revelation, to what he's even doing this day. In order to give a little bit of order to it ourselves, we're going to look at two aspects in Genesis 6 to 8 of, of the faith. We're going to look at the nature of faith and the object of our faith. The nature of faith and the object of our faith. And then we'll end in 45 minutes. Let's start again with a little bit of reading to give you the context of what has happened here. This is before what Will read, because I didn't feel like he read enough, so I wanted to add some verses. In Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7, we read this. This is after Adam has Cain. Cain kills Abel. Then Seth is born. And there's the story of Cain and his descendants and Seth and his descendants. And then in verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. It sits very heavy as God is looking at wickedness of humanity. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is evil. Now, that may not feel how you think of yourself, but that is the declaration of Christianity from Genesis to Revelation, is that we fall short, is that our intentions and desires are bent against God and towards ourself. But it says then there's the hopeful side of it as well. But Noah, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In order to break apart what the nature of our faith is, I want to look at Noah as an exemplar and note a few things about his faith. It's that Noah obeys, he waits, he surrenders all, and he worships. First thing I want us to look at is how faith is about obedience. This is really hard for us, but we read this in verse 13 to 16 of chapter 6. So in verse 13 to 16, we see that Noah is somebody who obeys. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Covered in, make rooms in the ark, covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. And he gives descriptions, de- detailed Descriptions here, the length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50, its height 30. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark inside it. Make it with lower second and third shelves. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. He goes on to say what he's going to do. This is what I want you to do, Noah. Build this. He gives him detailed descriptions. And we read in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. You know, we talk about faith and belief, and that's right because saving faith is trust in Christ. But faith is revealed in what you actually do. Your beliefs are revealed by what you do. Who you are reveals what you actually believe. And who you are is revealed in what you do. The thoughts and intentions of our heart, the life that we live, reveals what we actually trust in and believe. Noah is declared in verse 9 of chapter 6 to be righteous and blameless. And what's interesting, it doesn't describe him in these settings of righteous and blameless as somebody who avoided sin or avoided immorality in the way we think about it, like he avoided adultery or avoided murder. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say the things that it says of Job um, or that David talks about in the Psalms of he was generous and kind and exerted justice to the poor. Now, probably he did all these things, but that's not what's said at all. What we do know is that he, he did what God told him to do. He built a boat. And he built a boat for years. For years and years, he did what God told him to do. He built a boat. And honestly, I think that's a lot of what faith looks like. Faith looks like building the boat that God has called you to build. God has you where you are in life, not by accident. Whether you're single or married, have kids, your kids are grown, you've never had kids. 
all of your education or lack of education, your experiences in life, including your suffering, your abilities, your connections, your resources. God has you where you are in life right now to fulfill his purposes for you in this world and to do so today. And that's what faith is really at its core. It's following God today. And that's essentially the definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is following God today. And look, for some of us, some of you, that's a really hard thing to hear. Because what God might be calling you to do or to turn from is really hard. You don't want to do it. And honestly, you can even look at your life and say, is this what God is calling me to do or to say no to? I can't live the next 40 years like this. I can't live the next 60 years abstaining from this, turning from this, living my life only for this. How can I do this for the next 40 or 60 years? But remember this, faithfulness is about obeying God this day. And look, today is Sunday, right? So follow God today, just today, and then go to bed. And then tomorrow wake up and pray for the strength to follow God today. And then go to bed. That's what Noah does for years on end. He builds a boat, not knowing the full end of what God is going to do, but being faithful that day. And he goes to bed, and he wakes up the next day to follow God that day. So the first thing Noah does in revealing the nature of our faith is he obeys, and that's what we're called to as well. The second thing is Noah does a lot of waiting. And faith, faith in in Scripture and faith in God is always about waiting. And we hate this part too, but look, Noah waited on God for the flood to come, and he waited on God later for the deliverance from the flood once the flood had come. So for decades, he's building this boat, and no flood came. So, of course, anybody who's talked about this before or thought about it, you're like, you're there building a boat that is extremely large in the middle of a land that has no oceans near it. And what do your neighbors think? What are you building? Year in and year out, he's building it. What do you do when God calls you to do something that looks absurd to your neighbors? Don't do that, by the way. Don't go do something absurd just to like, try to prove the point. But, but basically, think about the place that Noah was in. Everything around him said what he was doing didn't make sense except God's word to him. And he had to wait and trust. He had to put his hope in God and trust in God's word. And yet for years, no floods came. All he had was a big ark. And that was it. Or a big ark that was being built. And then once he actually gets inside the ark and the rains come, he has to wait again. He's waiting for deliverance. He wasn't just in the boat for a few days. He was in the boat for months. They're in the boat shut in. There's no windows there's probably some air holes, but there's no, there's no windows. They're shut in with animals as the boat is being tossed and turned like a shipwrecked boat out in the ocean as the storm is coming in. So for months, you're like this with animals that stink. It was a miserable existence, a, a horrible existence, the raging waters, the, the terror of it all. And the entire time he has to wait. God, when are you, will we be delivered? 
Is this where we're going to die? Are we going to die in this thing? It even comes to the point where towards the end of the story, Noah knows the land is dry. He sees that the land is dry, but he waits for the word of the Lord before he disembarks. We see this in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 8, I think it is. Yeah, chapter 8. In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the cover of the ark, so he made it like a convertible, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You have two full months in which Noah sees the land is totally clear outside of his boat. Why doesn't he get out? He can see it's dry ground because God had not told him to get out. He didn't just go on the basis of what he saw. He trusted in God, which meant waiting and waiting on the Lord. And then God said, go out, Noah, you and your family, go out from the ark. The faith to wait is not easy. It's particularly painful when your desires, the things you want in life most, go unfulfilled for years and years. You want to be married and you've lived in extended singleness. You're struggling with years of unemployment. Your prayers for your kids don't seem to be answered. You want something desperately, a good thing, and there's no answer. It's really hard to wait when what we want is not being fulfilled by God. But waiting faith, waiting faith requires conformed desires so that what we desire is God's purposes more than our own. Waiting faith requires you to have desires that are conformed to God's desires. So what you're longing for and desiring most is what God wants. And we can get those confused. But it is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. His heart was conformed to the desires of his Father. I want this, but ultimately I want to serve and glorify you, Father. Because what I know is best is what you have in store. And that's why waiting faith, obedient faith, is costly. It involves surrender. And that's one of the third things I think we see in Noah's life in his response to God and what he does here is Noah surrenders. God asks Noah to believe the unbelievable, that a massive flood is coming to destroy the whole earth, and he needs to build a ridiculously large boat to fill everything inside of it in order to be saved. And yet there's no rain, nothing seems to be happening. And the only evidence that he has or the reason for building this boat is because God said so to him. Kent Hughes, a preacher, wrote on this, The person God saves is the one who believes the bare word of God so that it changes his life. Noah believed God's word in spite of what he could or could not see. He simply trusted in God's word in spite of the evidence around him. Total surrender involves total trust in God. Listen to the description in Genesis chapter 7 of what happens as they enter. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and all the animals is what happens next. They went into the ark, Noah with Noah, and two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. So this is right before the rains begin to fall. And one of the things that people have pointed out in the building of the ark and the description of the ark is that the ark has no sails, it has no oars, it has no rudder. There's no way to propel this ark and no way to steer it. So to enter the ark as they did was to give up any and all control. It was a total surrender to trusting God when you enter that ark even to the point of the, the, the wording that it says, and God shut them in. There's no doorknob. There's no way in or out, in a sense, once God shuts them in. It's God who closes them in. And they're trusting God to protect them, God to provide for them, God to fulfill his purposes to redeem them. They enter in and have to be totally entrusting themselves to God. Total and complete surrender of themselves to God. And that goes against everything in us, not just as, uh, as Americans, but as humans, but especially as Americans. Look, we are all about independence and control. We want to know the future, have figured it out. We want to master things. We want to be in control of situations. We desperately fight for independence. We want freedom, not just kind of generally freedom for all people. We want our own freedom. I want my liberty from any responsibilities, constraints, anybody else telling me what to do. Everything inside of us, both as humans and as Americans, is always pushing against anything that, that releases control or independence. And yet you enter this ark and you lose all of it. In other words, <laughs> I think in order to do this, I think in order to do this in our lives, you need to know God and whether you can trust him or not. I mean, entering the ark was the ultimate trust fall. It is, I give up everything to you, God, and I trust that you will catch me. But we read in Genesis 9-6 that Noah walked with God, and this is a telling statement. It's a Hebraism. It's used in the New Testament as well about walking with the Lord, walking with the Spirit. To walk with somebody is to go in the same direction as them, but in that way of Hebrew understanding of it, it meant relationship. You were in a relationship with the person you were walking with. And it was a relationship that implied daily relationship, continuous relationship, a lifetime of relationship. You know, God, it says in, this, in, this, in Genesis 6, talked, spoke to Noah we don't know how he spoke to him. Did he hear him audibly? Was he praying? Was he reading some, you know, texts of Scripture? Was, was he reflecting in other ways and the Lord moved him in his soul? We don't know, but what we do know is that Noah had a relationship with God because he walked with God. And I'm going to tell you, hearing God is a cultivated thing. If you're waiting around just for God to speak to you in some uh, kind of lightning bolt sort of way, that may happen. But I also know this, that as you cultivate a relationship with God, you begin to discern His purposes. You open up His Scriptures and you see more and more of what God is doing and what He wants in your life. And your prayer life can open up to hearing God 
in the still small voices and the movement of your conscience in an audible voice for some of you. God does speak because God has spoken. But to understand what God is doing, what he wants in your life is a cultivated thing. It's cultivated in daily relationship, continually daily seeking God and walking in his ways and walking with him. Noah obeys. He waits. He surrenders. And then at the end of the story, he worships. The very first thing Noah does when he gets out on dry ground is not what any of us would do, which is go get a burger, go to Chipotle. Like, you land on your airplane from overseas and you hit up all the food places you haven't been able to have because you were over in Europe and they don't have these things. Noah gets out, builds an altar, sacrifices animals, and worships God. The very first thing Noah does once he's on dry ground is thank God for deliverance. He acknowledges in this process who God is, who got him out, what God has done for him. He's acknowledging God's godness and God's rescue. You know, we've talked about this here, but maybe we haven't talked about it a lot, but we often think in, in our culture that sin is doing bad things, right? Sin is when you break the rules and you do bad things. But the way we've tried to reframe it to have a better understanding and push us into not just thinking of avoiding bad things, um, it's sin is living apart from God, living without an awareness of God. We can do that on a continual basis or in any given moment. On the given moment when we are acting out in fear or anger, we're not trusting God to be faithful to us. When we're trying to fulfill our own desires in ways that God does not ordain for us, we're not trusting that God can meet our needs apart from us meeting them ourselves. So whether it is uh, acting out deliberately or avoiding things or just living selfishly, it is avoiding God, ignoring God, pretending as if God doesn't exist in this moment, as I'm on this screen, as I'm interacting with this person. God's not here. We're living as if God doesn't exist. Sin is living apart from God. Worship is not what we do just on a Sunday morning. Worship is living with an awareness of God. And we're invited into a life of worship and always awareness of God's place in our life, not just an act on one moment. And that's much easier to do, I'm going to say. It's easier to live with an awareness of God when things are not going well. I think that's part of why Jesus said it's easier for, uh, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not that rich people couldn't enter the kingdom of God, it's that they didn't see their need of God. Same is true for us when things are going well, when you're relatively healthy, when your kids are okay, your relationships are balanced, your job is pretty secure. Do you really need God? Are you living with a constant awareness of Him? But God wants to invite us into a constant awareness of Him, a daily worship, an always awareness of Him, regardless of whether we are succeeding or struggling whether our kids are like top of the class or they're really not doing well, whether your life is exactly as you dreamed it would be or it's been a nightmare over the past couple of years, God wants to walk with us, wants us to walk with him in a continual and constant awareness of him. 
This worshipful attitude is something that is cultivated. It's cultivated in the habits of our daily life, and it's formed over the course of a lifetime of reshaping our loves towards God. Noah begins his post-life, post-flood life in an act of worship. He marks it with an act of worship. We mark things on a Sunday with an act of worship corporately. You can set aside times in your life, but really it's about cultivating a daily worship of God. The nature of the faith that we see God working at and working through in Noah is one that obeys, that waits, that surrenders, and that worships. And the object of our faith is God. It's pretty simple. You knew this was going to be the answer. The subject of this whole story, the main character, is not Noah. It's actually God. God's the one who assesses the nature of the world. God's the one who who assesses Noah and calls Noah into covenantal relationship. God's the one who calls Noah to build what he calls him to build, to do what he calls him to do. And it's God who pulls back the curtains, if you will, and the rains come flooding down. And it is God who pulls back the winds and blows on the earth and pushes away the floods. It is God who saves Noah and the animals. God is seen in this as holy and just judge, but also as merciful Savior. And in that sense, he's seen as this. He's seen as the authority. You know, we talked about this when we were beginning in Genesis, that the two biggest issues in our culture today are authority and anthropology. Authority meaning who or what is truly God in my life, and anthropology, what does it mean to be human? But our bigger struggle and the core issue of our struggle, our foundational struggle, is how do I know what I know? Why do I believe what I believe? What's the basis of you deciding what anything is good or right or true? How you should live your life? What matters? Genesis 1 is telling us again and again, Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one who says, and it is. God is the one who gives meaning and purpose and direction to creation and to life. He is the creator and Lord. And in that sense, when God brings justice or judgment, it's not so much God saying, oh, I dislike you. It's God pulling back his hand of mercy, constraining things and revealing himself as the one who is truly Lord and saying, are you going to follow me or not? And that's what we ultimately have to decide with each of our lives, as Noah does in this. He says, I will follow God, not just what I observe. I will follow God and not what everyone else is doing. I will follow God today. He will be the authority in my life. I will trust him. C.S. Lewis sums it up in a very stark but C.S. Lewis's way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Who or what is your authority? We talk about faith in God, faith in Christ. But the question boils down to who or what is the foundation of what you believe? And can you trust this God? You know, I think one of the things that um, many Christian preachers would tell you is that the story of Noah's Ark is not just about judgment and, and and a boat and a bunch of animals. It's actually a prefiguring of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us there is judgment for sin, but if you enter the Ark that He has provided, you will be saved. What's interesting to think about is God says, here's the way to be saved. Get in this Ark. We don't get people outside who probably were saying, well, isn't there another boat you could get in? There's got to be lots of boats out there. 
What if you're a really good swimmer? This flood comes, you just swim for a little bit, hold on to a tree. God says to Noah and his family, and in the building of the ark, they're saying to everyone, be aware, there's a flood coming. Get in this ark. Get in this ark. This is the one way. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 4. There is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. To which all of us say, are you sure there's only one name? What if you're a really good person? You have to put your trust in Jesus, him alone. But that's the gospel story. The gospel story, the gospel narrative of who Jesus Christ is, basically exactly mimics this, uh, or kind of is living out what is happening in, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. We actually, we declared it in our faith, um, in our creed earlier today, in Ephesians chapter 2. We get this description of our sta- state and then God's salvation. We didn't read verses 1 through 3 when we declared our faith earlier today, but it's this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's basically the, the prologue to the Noah and flood story. God looks at humanity and says, every desires and intention of their heart is against me. Therefore, I will bring, I will bring wrath and judgment. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, is a common refrain in the New Testament as a description of what it means to be in relationship with God, to be walking with the Lord, is to be in Christ, to put your faith in Christ. One passage says, the payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ Jesus, there's eternal life. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is very clear and very simple. Get in Christ. Get in the boat. And that's what faith is. Saving faith is getting in. It is surrendering all to Christ. That he is the authority who you worship and obey today. And then you go to bed. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak to us in our heart as we push against following you in the way that it seems like we need to, and all the questions and things that we don't understand in this story, reveal to us simply the ark that is Christ, the hope that is salvation, and the way to enter in through faith. Savior, we give ourselves to you. Amen.
Thou the spring. 